Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-10, Babur and the Afghans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Babur, the great-great-grandson of Timur, establishes the Mughal dynasty when he conquers Delhi in 1526. Despite this success, Babur still faces opposition from the Afghans and Rajputs in northern India. Babur continues to expand his territory, steadily moving east towards Bengal. In 1527, Babur defeats a Rajput alliance at the Battle of Khanwa. And with that, let's discuss Babur's war against the Afghan nobility of the former Delhi Sultanate. Chanderi Babur's two primary enemies in India were the Rajputs and the Afghans. Even though he had subdued both groups, he had not completely beaten them yet. Babur had defeated the Afghan Lodi dynasty in his conquest of the Delhi Sultanate in 1526 at the Battle of Panipat. However, there were still many Afghans with considerable power in India. Some of them were still loyal to the Lodi family. Others just saw Babur as a foreign invader. He had also defeated Rana Sangha of the Rajputs at the Battle of Khanwa in 1527. And there were still many Rajputs in western India who also wanted to get rid of Babur. Many of them wanted to fulfill Rana Sangha's dream of restoring India to Hindu rule. But with Rana Sangha gone, the Rajputs turned to someone new to lead the way. They rallied under the leadership of Madini Rao, a former vassal and ally of Rana Sangha. Madini Rao ruled over Chanderi, that's a town about 265 miles south of Delhi in what is now Madhya Pradesh in India. Chanderi had once belonged to Ibrahim Lodi, but he lost it when his army rebelled against him. Rana Sangha then took over before passing it on to Madini Rao. The city of Chanderi was mostly on the slope of a hill with its primary citadel or fortress situated on top of the hill. Chanderi was further protected by city walls and an outer fortress. Having beaten Rana Sangha, Babur moved with his army towards Chanderi and Madini Rao. He departed in December 1527, arrived at Chanderi in January 1528, then set up camp a few miles outside of town. Master Ali Kuli found a nice, flat area to set up his cannons and mortars. Meanwhile, Babur's soldiers prepared their shields, ladders, and other siege material. As Babur was preparing to attack Chanderi, he received word the Afghans had defeated his army at Lucknow in northern India. His army then fled to Kanoj, about 50 miles west. But he could not let that distract him at the moment. He put northern India out of his mind for the moment so he could focus on Chanderi. He gave the order to attack, and Master Ali Kuli's artillery opened up on the city walls. At first, the cannons failed to do much damage. 
Despite the newly designed cannons and Master Ali and Cooley's meticulous arrangement, the giant stone missiles crashed harmlessly into the fortress walls. But then, Bob Orton learned of a weak spot where water from a nearby pond entered the town through a drain. Bob Orton ordered his soldiers to attack that location. As they did so, the Rajput defenders on top of the wall hurled stones and shot flaming arrows at the Mughal troops. Nonetheless, Babur's soldiers would not let up, finally breaking through the wall and forcing their way into the city. Babur describes this moment in his memoirs. That the citadel of Chanduri stands on a hill has been said already. Down one side of this hill runs a double-walled road, Dutati, to water. This is the one place for attack. It had been assigned as the post of the right and left hands and royal corps of the center. Hurled through assault was from every side. The greatest force was here brought to bear. Our braves did not turn back, however much the pagans threw down stones and flung flaming fire upon them. At length, Shahing the centurion got up where the Dutahi wall touches the wall of the outer fort. Braves swarmed up in other places. The Dutahi was taken. As the Mughal soldiers flooded into the abandoned town, the Rajput defenders fled up the hill towards the citadel. They fortified themselves within and hunkered down with their families. The Rajputs knew their options were limited. It was just a matter of time before the Mughal army fought their way into the citadel as well. In this hopeless situation, the Rajputs decided to perform Johar, the ceremonial mass suicide. The purpose of this final act of defiance was to show they preferred to die than suffer the humiliation of defeat or capture. First, the Rajput women set themselves and their children on fire. Angry and enraged, the Rajput men then stripped naked and ran outside to fight the Mughals to the death. As the Rajput men rushed towards them, Babur's troops held their formation and proceeded to wipe out most of the Rajput soldiers. Roughly 300 Rajputs escaped the slaughter and retreated to Madini Rao's headquarters. These final few troops also decided to commit mass suicide. One man would bend his neck while his partner struck it with his sword. In this manner, the Battle of Chandiri was over within a few hours. In fact, there was relatively little fighting since so many of the Rajputs committed suicide. For his part, Babur continued his practice of building towers of skulls. He built one of Rajput skulls at the top of the hill in Chandiri. He then decided to give this battle a name, calling it Fathe Darul Harab. Babur describes this victory in his memoirs. By God's grace, this renowned fort was captured in two or three hours without drum and standard, with no hard fighting done. A pillar of pagan heads was ordered set up on a hill northwest of Chandiri. A chronogram of this victory having been found in the words Fathe Darul Harb, I thus composed them. Babur then writes a short poem describing his victory. Was for a while the station Chanduri pagan full, the seat of hostile force. By fighting, I vanquished its fort, 
The date was Fatha Darul Harb. Fatha Darul Harb literally means the victory of the house of war. But Darul Harb, the second part of that phrase, or house of war, refers to the nations of non-Muslims. Therefore, a more accurate translation would be conquest of the non-Muslim nation, speaking of Chandiri. There is a picture in the Babur Nama showing the Mughal troops as they try to break through Chandiri's walls. It is a chaotic painting, with the Mughals mostly on horseback at the base of the wall, fighting the Rajputs on top of the wall. Some Mughal troops are shooting arrows up at the Rajput troops. Others are holding lances, riding their horses like they're searching for a target to attack. Yet others are holding up their shields as if they're trying to block the enemy's missiles. The scene on top of the wall in this picture is just as frantic. The Rajput defenders are shooting arrows down at the Mughal troops. Some Rajputs are thrusting their lances at the Mughals on horseback. One Rajput man is holding up a stone prepared to hurl it at the Mughals. Some of the Rajputs are running in different directions as if they're desperately trying to plug up holes in their defense. Interestingly, amongst the Rajputs are several women. One woman in the background is apparently dead. Another Rajput woman is holding something like a black cloth. The painting also highlights the differences between the Mughal's equipment and the Rajput's equipment. Only one Rajput soldier is wearing a helmet. The others seem to be wearing regular turbans and regular clothes. Meanwhile, the Mughals at the base of the wall are all wearing helmets. Many of them have shields and light armor. Even some of the Mughal horses are wearing armor. From this painting, it is clear that despite their bravery, the Rajputs were fighting an enemy that was better equipped better organized, and more cohesive. The Afghans With the Rajputs taken care of, Babord was now ready to head north and deal with the Afghans. In his book, The Mughal Empire, author John F. Richards discusses the rise of Afghan power in northern India. Their principal adversaries were Afghans who had supplanted Turks and Persians to become the most powerful and widely dispersed Muslim group in northern India. Under the Lodi dynasty, thousands of Afghan soldiers and traders had migrated from the mountain valleys of Afghanistan to the plains of north India. Many, like the founder of the Lodi dynasty, Bahlul Lodi, could trace their origins to the overland horse trade. North Indian demands for riding and battle horses created a ready market for the hardy horses of the Central Asian steppe. By this point in time, many of these Afghan adventurers had settled on the land as local lords who controlled a Hindu peasantry. By this time, the Afghans had taken both Lucknow and Kanoj. Kanoj is on the western side of the Ganges River. The Ganges, which originates in the Himalayas, flows southeast through northern India and on into Bangladesh, where it's called the Padma. In Bangladesh, the Padma River converges with the Brahmaputra River before emptying out into the Bay of Bengal. 
Babur and his army reached Kanoj in February 1528. He set up camp upstream from Kanoj on the western side of the Ganges River. Then he ordered a bridge built over the river. Master Ali Kuli found a good spot to set up his cannons and promptly began shelling the enemy positions. Meanwhile, Mustafa Rumi relocated the artillery caissons to one of the many islands created by the Ganges River. Caissons are wheeled carts used for carrying artillery pieces and ammunition. Once the artillery was set up, Mustafa Rumi also began firing on the enemy. A little further upstream from where the bridge was being built, Babur's matchlock men set up their fortifications and opened fire as well. The Mughals on the western side of the river fought the Afghans for several hours. They finally withdrew in the late afternoon. Babur describes how the enemy was mocking his bridge. On the 19th of Jamadathani, the bridge was completed and we marched onto it. The Afghans, who were quite skeptical about it, had been hooting and making fun of us. But nobody was laughing when his artillery began crossing the bridge two days later, followed by the matchlock men and the bulk of Babur's army. The following morning, the Mughal war drums began pounding, signaling the men into formation. But then word came that the Afghan troops had fled. Babur went after them, chasing the Afghans out of Kanoj and Lucknow. But the Afghans weren't done fighting yet. They rallied behind Ibrahim Lodi's brother, Mahmoud Lodi, who ruled over Bihar to the east. Mahmoud Lodi was joined by another Afghan leader, Shur Khan Sir. Stay tuned, because Shur Khan will play a critical role during the reign of Babur's son, Humayun. Altogether, the Afghan forces reportedly numbered near 100,000 strong. But the Afghans were not one cohesive unit. There were actually two major Afghan factions vying for power in northwestern India. The Lodi family, along with Shere Khan, was one faction. The Lohani faction was the other. The Lohani clan now led by Mahmud Khan Lohani, had once rebelled against the Lodis of Delhi. Seeing an opportunity, Babur went to Ghazipur, about 180 miles east of Lucknow. He met with Mahmud Khan Lohani, who submitted to him as a vassal. Not long after that, Shere Khan Suri also switched allegiances and also submitted to Babur. Now, Mahmud Lodi and his Bengali army had to face Babur alone. The two forces fought at the Battle of Gagra in May 1529, where Babur emerged victorious. Frustrated, several Afghan clans chose to submit to Babur rather than continue fighting him. Finally, Babur and Nusrat Shah, the ruler of Bengal, signed a peace deal establishing the borders between their two kingdoms. Babur had beaten his two primary enemies, the Rajputs and the Afghans. Without a doubt, he was the master of North India. His empire now stretched from Kabul in Afghanistan to the west, across the Punjab, east to Bihar, south to Gwalior, and large parts of the state of Rajasthan. 
John F. Richards sums up Babur's victories over the Rajputs and Afghans in his book, The Mughal Empire. These brisk victories, achieved over the dominant warrior coalitions themselves struggling for control of Hindustan, gave Babur a base from which to consolidate his rule in northern India. He could have treated these engagements as simply the culmination of a giant and highly successful plundering raid into Hind and withdrawn to Kabul. Many of his followers probably looked forward to this withdrawal. Humayun had already been sent back to Kabul to defend that city and its region against further Uzbek assaults. Instead, however, Babur decided to stay and to strengthen his hold over the fertile lands and wealthy cities of Hindustan. Death and Legacy Babur's eldest son, Humayun, fell sick in the summer of 1530. It was feared the young man, who was only 22 years old, might even die from his illness. Babur took this very hard. He was reported to pace continuously around Humayun's sickbed, praying to Allah to heal his son. Babur even went so far as to pray that Humayun's sickness would be transferred to him instead. Fortunately, Humayun soon began to recover. Unfortunately, Babur began to fall sick around the same time. Legend has it that Allah answered Babur's prayer, taking the sickness away from Humayun and giving it to Babur. Of course, this simply may have been a coincidence. Or, perhaps Babur contracted the sickness while caring for his son. And we cannot overlook the fact that Babur got sick often throughout his life. These bouts of illness were aggravated and exacerbated by his alcohol and opium consumption. Whatever caused Babur to get sick, unlike his son, he did not recover. Babur died in 1531 at the age of 47. He was initially buried in Agra, then 15 years later, his remains were moved to Kabul. They remain there to this day. Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur was a man of many contradictions. By all accounts, especially his own, he was a devout Muslim. Yet, he was a heavy drinker until late in life and addicted to opium. He was a Sunni Muslim, and like most Muslims from Central Asia, he was a proud devotee of the Hanafi Madhab. Yet he pretended to convert to Shiaism when he needed help from the Safavids. Even the language Babur spoke was an exercise in contradiction. The following excerpt comes from the article, Courtly Culture Under Babur and the Early Mughals, written by Stephen P. Blake in the 1986 Journal of Asian History. While Persian was the language of the Mughal state in administration and at court, it was never the native tongue of any but a handful of the elite. Except for those newly arrived from Iran, Persia was familiar but foreign, a language of culture with a status somewhat similar to that of French at the Tsarist court in 19th century Russia. 
Persian played the same role in Central Asia during the 14th and 15th centuries, and it is important to remember this when thinking about Babur. Babur spoke Chagatay Turkish, composed one of the prose masterpieces of the language, and created an inspired body of Turkish poetry. Nevertheless, like Timur and the other Turkic Mongol rulers and nobles of Central Asia, Babur accepted the paramount role of Persian in culture and administration. Babur was a poet, he was an author, and a man who loved gardens and natural beauty. But he could also be a brutal warrior with several towers of skulls to his name. This letter he wrote to Humayun in 1529 provides additional insight into Babur's character. O my son, the realm of Hindustan is full of diverse creeds. Praise be to Allah, the righteous the glorious, the most high, that he had granted unto thee the empire of it. It is but proper that you, with heart cleansed of all religious bigotry, should dispense justice according to the tenets of each community, and in particular refrain from the sacrifice of cow, for that way lies the conquest of the hearts of the people of Hindustan, and the subjects of the realm will, through royal favor, be devoted to you and the temples and abodes of worship of every community under the imperial sway you should not damage. Dispense justice so that the sovereign may be happy with the subjects, and likewise the subjects with their sovereign. The progress of Islam is better by the sword of kindness, not by the sword of oppression. Ignore the disputations of Shias and Sunnis, for therein is the weakness of Islam, and bring together the subjects with different beliefs in the matter of four elements— so that the body politic may be immune for the various ailments, and on us is but the duty to advise. Wives and Children Babur's first wife was his paternal cousin, Aisha Sultan Begum. She was the daughter of his father's brother, Sultan Ahmed Mirza. Aisha Sultan Begum was only a baby when she was promised to Babur, who was only five years old himself. They officially married 11 years later, either in 1498 or perhaps 1499. They only had one child together, a girl named Fakhronisa, who died within a year. Aisha Sultan Begum left Babur and returned to her family three years later when he first lost Fergana. In 1504, Babur married Zainab Sultan Begum. She died two years later without bearing him any children. Between 1506 and 1508, Babur married four different women. Maham Begum, Masuma Sultan Begum, Gulruch Begum, and Dildar Begum. He had four children with Maham Begum, but Humayun was the only one to survive infancy. Masum Sultan Begum died giving birth. He had two sons with Gulruch Begum, these were Kamran and Askari. His youngest son, Hindal, was born to Dildar Begum, but as we know, he was raised by Maham Begum. Babur also married a Pashtun woman of the Yusufzai tribe named Mubaraka Yusufzai. Tamas Shah Safavi, the Shah of Persia, had gifted Babur two Circassian concubines named Gulnar Agacha and Nargul Agacha. 
We mentioned this in previous series, but the Circassians are an ethnic group from the Caucasus region. Both concubines were recognized as ladies of the household. That will do it for this episode. In the next episode, inshallah, we will begin discussing the reign of Humayun. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-10. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Walid ibn Abdulaziz is given the bay'ah as the next Umayyad Caliph. Caliph al-Walid appoints Omar ibn Abdulaziz as governor of Medina, and Qutayba ibn Muslim begins a campaign against Bukhara in Uzbekistan. All right, so let's begin. We are in the year 88 AH, which is roughly 707 CE. During this period of time, early in the year, Caliph al-Walid's brother, Maslama ibn Abdul Malik, and his son, Abbas ibn al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik, they are running through Anatolia, capturing various Byzantine fortresses, particularly in the area of Tuana, which is modern Cappadocia in central Anatolia, roughly 155 miles southwest of Ankara. Long story short, Maslama ibn Abdul Malik is continuing and broadening his campaign against the Byzantines in Anatolia. He would go on to capture an additional three fortresses in Anatolia and took hundreds of Byzantines as captives before the end of the year. So that's Anatolia. Now let's go down to the Hejaz. In Medina, Around the month of Rabi'ul Awal, 88 AH, the Umayyads began the reconstruction of Masjid al-Nabi, or the Prophet's Mosque, in Medina. As we mentioned, Omar ibn Abdulaziz was the governor of Medina at this time. 
and he was ordered by his boss, Amir al-Mu'minin al-Walid, to rebuild the masjid that, be, that was named after Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Amir al-Mu'minin al-Walid ordered the walls of the Prophet's mosque to be torn down and then rebuilt. He sent a letter to Omar ibn Abdulaziz with instructions of how he wanted the masjid remodeled and redid. Now at the time, the rooms of Umul Mu'minin, that is the mothers of the believers, that is the wives of Prophet Muhammad, the rooms of Umul Mu'minin were separated from the masjid itself. There are many hadiths, I'm sure you've heard of them, where the Prophet would leave Aisha's apartment and then enter the masjid, or leave the masjid and then enter Aisha's apartment. And he had other wives who had their houses connected to the masjid, not their houses, their rooms or their apartments connected to the masjid as well. Well, of course, this is now a good 70 years after the Prophet's death. All of his wives are dead by this time. And... Walid, Caliph al-Walid, wants these, these walls that were separating these rooms torn down in order to increase the space in the masjid. So he ordered Umar ibn Abdulaziz to tear down these walls as well as buy the land behind the masjid to further extend its dimensions, thereby increasing the overall room of Masjid al-Nabi. And if you've ever visited the Prophet's Masjid in Medina, you know exactly where at least one of these rooms were. You know where the Prophet's tomb, his grave, as well as that of Abu Bakr and Omar, you know where they are in the Prophet's Masjid, the Masjid al-Nabi. That would have been where Aisha's room was as well, one of those rooms where the walls were torn down. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to read a quote from Tariqa Tabari explaining or that further illustrates the instructions that the caliph gave to the governor of Medina. Move the Qibla forward if you are able and you are able because of the standing of your maternal uncles. They will not go against you. If any of them objects, order the people of the Misr to estimate a fair value for him, then demolish and pay them the prices. You have good precedence for this in the actions of Omar and Othman. All right, so this is the letter that the caliph sent to Omar ibn, ibn Abdulaziz to tear down the walls of the Prophet's masjid and expand the overall dimension, dimensions. Now, one thing that he mentioned, well, a couple of things he mentioned, actually, First, he said, move the Qibla wall forward. The Qibla, I know most of you who are listening to this are Muslim, but there are some non-Muslims or perhaps even some new Muslims who are listening. The Qibla is the direction of prayer where Muslims pray. So in Medina, it would have been, well, all the, the Qibla is all, all over the world is like towards the, um, the Kaaba in Mecca. And so in Medina, the Qibla is facing towards Mecca as well. So Qibla is the direction of that the Muslims pray in. So Al-Walid is telling Omar ibn Abdulaziz to move the Qibla wall, the wall that represents the direction of prayer, move it forward. He says, if you are able, then he says, because, and you are able. He is confirming that because of the standing of your maternal uncle. This is actually that Omar's mother, Omar ibn Abdulaziz's mother, that is, was a descendant of Omar ibn al-Khattab. 